If you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn to the book of Romans. We've been studying the book of Romans recently as a church and just having a great time learning about the greatness of the gospel and our great need for it. I want to begin this morning, however, by talking about America's pastor. America's pastor is the unofficial title given to the pastor or spiritual advisor most esteemed by our country. Time gives it to longtime Robert Schuller disciple Rick Warren. Rick Warren, America's pastor. USA Today tips its hat to Oprah Winfrey. Oprah Winfrey, America's pastor. CBS News says it's Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen. America's pastor. While we can't agree on who America's pastor is, we can agree that those three candidates have something in common that is striking. What they share is a commitment, whether or not it's voiced as a commitment or not, to not talking about the wrath of God. They seem to go out of their way, as a matter of fact, to not talk about the just wrath of God. And that is alarming. It's alarming for our nation. It's alarming for them to be our pastors, quote-unquote, and to not, under any circumstance, talk about the wrath of God. It's alarming because, in the words of one Christian thinker, listen carefully, A God without wrath brings people without sin into a kingdom without judgment to a Christ without a cross. Pretty famous quotation there. In other words, if you don't have wrath from God, if you don't have the the just punishment from God upon sinners who have rebelled against Him, if you don't have wrath, you don't have a gospel. If you don't have wrath from God, Christianity makes no sense. If you don't have wrath coming from God, deserved wrath from God, the cross, the the centerpiece of all that is Christian is nonsensical at best. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5 and you can see what I mean. In Romans chapter 5, we've worked through all of the wrath, so to speak. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. We've started hearing about the good news. And and here we we see it encapsulated. We see uh, the the good good meets the bad and the solution to the bad. In Romans chapter 5, verse 9, you'll see what I mean. Much more than having now been justified. He's talking about people who are Christians. They've been declared righteous. They've been justified. And how does that happen? By His blood. And Jesus shed His blood on the cross. He's explaining the cross. The cross where Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As He experienced the undiluted wrath of God. The cross where, according to Isaiah 53, He was crushed by His Father under His Father's wrath. Having now been justified by His blood, that is through the cross work of Christ, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. It is through the cross work of Christ, through the shedding of Christ's blood, 
that we don't have to face the wrath of God because he experienced it for us. This is not rocket science. This isn't a new teaching or a new philosophy. This is Christianity 101. This is the very basic, basic kindergarten level explanation of the gospel. Jesus dies in our place. He sheds his blood for us. He bears the wrath for us on the cross so that we don't have to face the wrath of God. That's Romans 5, 9. If we believe in him, if we trust in him, we'll be justified. We'll have his righteousness. Folks, this is the gospel. This is the good news. And this is why I've been trying to emphasize over and over again in the study of God's wrath, the wrath of God is what helps us to see the goodness of God in the gospel. The wrath of God is what makes the gospel gospel gospel-esque. And apart from the wrath of God, the gospel doesn't make any sense. The cross doesn't make any sense. And so what does God do? In His great, amazing wisdom, He gives us in His Word this book we call Romans. Many have called it, and I've used it, I've borrowed it. It's the gospel according to Romans. Why? Because it explains the gospel in detail. It unpacks it for us. It explains the ins and the outs and and it deals with the arguments against it. It it, it answers those questions. It's an amazing book that articulates and makes clear for us the goodness of God that He saves sinners from His own wrath by having His Son experience it for us. God is good in giving us the book of Romans to explain the gospel. And sadly, we don't understand the gospel by and large because we are so afraid to even have our pastors say anything about wrath. But remember, where there is no wrath, according to God's thinking in the book of Romans, according to any of the four gospel accounts, where there is no wrath, there really is no gospel. There is no true Christian religion. This might be shocking to us as evangelicals because... Just as a fun fact, according to Business Week, we did a cover article on how much stuff we buy, how much evangelical trinketry we buy. Cover article. They were so amazed at how much evangelicals spend on their evangelical stuff that we buy four times as much stuff, Christian stuff, than we bought 25 years ago. So based upon... Buying, selling habits? We should be more committed to the gospel now. Four times more committed than we were 25 years ago. I mean, we are buying it like it's nobody's business. In fact, most of the Christian companies and publishers have now been bought by unbelievers because they see it's such a lucrative business because we're spending like crazy because we, no doubt, love Jesus. We're Christians. We love the gospel. Our pastors are people who go out of their way to never talk about wrath. And therefore, they don't talk about the gospel. And therefore, we're in dire straits. This is, this is a time like few times. I don't want to say like never before because history seems to repeat itself. Where we need Romans. Because we need the gospel and we need to understand it so that we can proclaim it with love and passion and mercy so that we can set the record straight, so to speak. 
Our, our country needs the gospel. Our country needs, therefore, to learn about the wrath of God. And, and our country, therefore, by the way, needs new pastors. It needs new Christians, if you will. It needs people like you who can say, I can help you understand the dilemma to your problem. Oh, by the way, you have a problem. And so you can understand the greatness of Christ. And so He can be glorified the way He should be glorified. Because again, apart from wrath, not only is there no gospel, there's no glory for Jesus Christ as being the great wrath bearer who did that for us because He loves us. That brings us to Romans, this great book. And we've been looking at this subject of wrath for a number of weeks. We're going to finish chapter 1 this morning and then move on. Not to less wrath, there'll just be more of that. (laughs) But we'll see it from a different angle. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, that's our text. Romans 1, 18 to 32, and in that text you can find clearly three universals. Three universals regarding the wrath of God that put the gospel in context. Three universals about the wrath of God that put the gospel in context to help us to see the gospel as gospel-esque, as truly good news. Remember, chapter 1 deals with humanity in general. Chapter 2 and chapter 3 start dealing with religious people as well as quote-unquote do-gooders. And it's showing us systematically that no matter what category you're in, you're under the wrath of God. And that's why everyone needs the gospel, and that should motivate us to speak the gospel, to know the gospel, to believe the gospel. But we're in chapter 1, three universals regarding the wrath of God upon sin. And we've looked at the first two already, and I'm going to mention them, review, and we'll look at number three today. The first universal regarding the wrath of God. Number one, God's wrath is universally revealed. God's wrath is universally revealed. We see this in verse 18. I'd like you to look at that with me where it says, For the wrath of God is revealed. Literally, is being revealed. This is a present reality from heaven, so it comes from Him against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. That's where I got the idea of universal. It's all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And I just ever so quickly want to remind you, that comes to us right after... That quick summary of the gospel in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 about how we can have Christ's righteousness, we can have God's righteousness, and we can have a right standing before God, and this is good news, and it happens through faith, and it's so wonderful. He helps us to see that, and then he goes for 64 verses explaining the context of that, which is, apart from Christ's righteousness through faith, it's wrath. Well, here... That is connected in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed. What makes us so excited about this good news? Well, what makes us excited about the good news in 16 and 17 is for the wrath of God is revealed, is being revealed. And it's universally being revealed. What makes the gospel so great is the backdrop of wrath. Number two, a second universal regarding the just wrath of God that puts the gospel in context. Number two, God's wrath is universally deserved. God's wrath is universally deserved. Everyone deserves the wrath of God. And it's almost like Paul here is in defense mode. He's arguing his case. He's giving evidence after evidence after evidence that this makes sense. Everyone is under God's wrath. It's universally deserved. It reminds me one time when I was having one of those those moments where you know God is in it because you're not smart enough to give such a good answer. I remember one time I, I, I sat down and started talking to this person and they uh, we got the, the small talk over with and talking about the you know the weather and 
the birds and all that kind of stuff none of us care about. And we got the pleasantries over, and then it became clear what it is I do. And so this person thought, I can ask theological questions, and so I'm going to do that, and I appreciated that. Question number one, what do you believe about hell? And I'm kind of slow on the uptake. You know, I have to study all week to preach a sermon on Sunday. And (laughs) I'm not too good just on the fly. And so I know God was in this because I gave the best answer I could possibly give. It was one of those times where, you know, I'm having an outer body experience going, that's a great answer. God gets the glory for that. What, What is it that you believe about hell? And I said, well, I'll start by saying I should be there right now. Good answer, huh? <laughs> I get no credit for that one. That's just such, such a good answer. God gets the credit for that. This person expected me to say, you should be there. Expected me to go on to some who knows what explanation of hell. And we eventually got to that stuff. But the bottom line is, I should be there. God's wrath is universally deserved. We all deserve it, no matter what your occupation is, no matter what what your background is. We deserve the wrath of God. And he articulates that here in this text. Well, it even started in verse 18 because he talked about uh, they, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They know the truth, but they hold it down. But then he goes on to explain in verse 19, you can look with me there, because that which is known about God is evident within them. There's something in every individual that knows there's a God, knows the truth about God. He goes on to give more evidence for God made it evident to them it's not that God withheld the truth he actually gave the truth he gives more evidence verse 24 since the creation of the world this is since the very beginning his invisible attributes his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen that's more evidence that we're all guilty verse 20 goes on being understood through what has been made here's the guilt statement verse 20 so that purpose they the all of verse 18 are without excuse. See, everyone deserves the wrath of God. It's a universal thing. He goes on to explain in verse 21, for for even though they they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. Literally, they didn't glorify Him as God. They they knew, but instead of seeing all that He has made, instead of saying, we worship You, we praise You as the one true God, which is why we're made. We're made in the image of God. We're made as worshipers. It's the ultimate reality. It's the ultimate reason we're made. It's what we're designed to do. Instead of doing the very thing that is best, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks in verse 21, giving further logical explanation in verse 21, but they became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Instead of seeing the one true God, as I've been saying over and over again, instead of worshiping Him and glorifying Him, instead of doing that, what happens? They became futile in their speculations. They started speculating. They didn't embrace the revelation of God. Instead, they said, I think God is, or to me God is, or, or I don't know if we can know, and all of this self-authority, all this speculation, all of this acting like God came. And that is just showing us in the argument of Romans, guilty, 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 guilty. Verse 21 goes on with this futile speculation. I think God is, to me God is, professing to be wise. See, as soon as I open my mouth and say, I think God is, or to me God is, I'm saying, I know more than God. Because it's against His revelation. 
they became fools. And we all know that's, that's foolish. Verse 23, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible or the imperishable or the immortal God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. We read all this ending in verse 23. And if we're thinking through the logical argument, we say it makes sense that sinners are under the wrath of God. They deserve it. Now we come to the third universal, new stuff. Third universal regarding the wrath of God that helps us understand the gospel. God's wrath is universally inflicted. God's wrath is universally inflicted. And we see this in verses 24 to 32, and we will go quickly. But as we go quickly, I want you to get a little preview of what we're about ready to see. In verses 24 to 32, he's talking about how how everyone is under the wrath of God. Not only does everybody deserve it, not only has it been revealed, but, but everyone is actually under it. And he, he fleshes this out using these three refrains, these three awful, haunting, unsettling refrains. He repeats himself, and you know it well if you know Romans very well at all, by saying, what? God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. He gives them over. He gives them over. He gives them over. It's in verse 24. It's in verse 26. It's in verse 28. And we've talked about this already. This is God's wrath in verse 18 where God uh, shows His wrath by giving them over, by by releasing sinners to sin, by, by abandoning them, by withdrawing, by taking His hand away and letting them go their own way. It's God's wrath of abandonment. We talked about this uh, in, in the days ahead or in the days behind, but it's true. The Bible talks about God's coming wrath, like in the book of Revelation, like in the book of First Thessalonians. There is a coming wrath of God associated with the second coming of Christ. But this is not that. This is talking about God's wrath is being revealed. Romans one eighteen, and it is the wrath of abandonment. God gives them over to do what they want, but it ends in disaster. So let's begin looking at this abysmal series of refrains. And by the way, I just have to do it, and I'll try to do it throughout. Before we jump right into it, remember, remember big picture, remember context. This is all in a book that's about the gospel. We need to see how dark it is. How we are under the wrath of God because then Christ will be seen as magnificent. That is his argument here. He doesn't want us to stop here. He wants us to see this is why we should tell people about the greatness of Christ. This is why we ourselves should believe the truth about Christ, believe in him and his person and his work. So it's all moving toward the good news. All right, abysmal statement number one or declaration. Therefore, notice the logic. Because God is... responding to this God-is-me idolatry. Therefore, in light of what everyone has done, God gave them over. He gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. It's not very hard to understand. It's as if God is saying, okay, Based upon the verses before, I revealed myself universally, graciously. 
And instead of you taking my revelation of myself and worshiping me and giving me glory, instead, you said, to me, God is like, which is idolatry, which therefore leads to me giving you over. And I'm going to give you over. I'm going to pour out my wrath of abandonment upon you. You think you're so smart. You think you want to follow your heart instead of my revelation. It doesn't end well. The lusts of their, impu- uh, of their hearts to impurity. They think it's honorable. And instead, what's the verse that's used there in verse 24? Dishonored. They're given over to dishonor. Then he starts giving us more rationale. He wants, us to, make, he wants to make sure that, that no one can legitimately say, that's not right. That's not fair. Verse 25 goes on to say, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. You want a reason? Why did I do this? I gave them the truth about me. Remember chapter 1, verse 18? We saw that. Who suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. Verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God. I gave them what is true. I revealed myself. But what did they do in verse 25? They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. This is absolutely hostile. By the way, even where it says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, literally in the Greek New Testament, it's for the lie. It's the lie because it's the ultimate in wrong things. If you have the truth about God, the revelation of God, and you turn from that, you necessarily are committing idolatry, which is the lie. You can stand in judgment of God. God says, here's who I am, and you say, to me, God is. That's the lie of all lies. And that's exactly what's been committed. They exchange the truth of God for the lie, literally. And worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, which certainly would include themselves. Okay, God, you say you're sovereign, you say you're the king, you say you're to be worshipped and served, and everything I ever do in life should ultimately be done for the great and wonderful purpose of bringing glory and honor to you because that just makes sense because you're the creator and I'm the created being. To me, God is. That's the lie. It's against the truth. And so when God says, all right, I'm going to let you go, I'm going to abandon you, and that's my form of wrath. He's, he's just. He's, he's fair in doing that. You've got to love Paul writing this as a Christian. It's almost like he can't help himself in verse 25, adding a little statement, a little sanctified statement amidst the badness. Who is blessed forever, amen. <laughs> Some people think that, shouldn't, that doesn't belong in here. I think it belongs. I think it just makes sense. He just, you know, he just has a doxological mindset, the doxology, the worship of God. And he's talking about all this wrath and he's talking about all this bad stuff. He's talking about rebellion and the spiritual mutiny against God. But he happens to mention the creator, creator. And so what does he say? Who is, what does he say? Who is blessed forever? Amen. I like it that he did that. He did that because he knows the gospel himself. Well, he's going to get more specific. Abysmal refrain number two, verse 26. For this reason, going back to this exchanging the truth of God for a lie, the logic is always building upon itself, the idolatry that comes as a result, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. 
once again. You want your freedom? I'll give you your freedom. But you will find that your freedom is bondage to sin and it is disastrous. We continue on. For there are women, first illustration, exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. What is evidence of the wrath of God? Evidence of the wrath of God is when God lets people go and they do things like this. We're supposed to read this, no doubt, as outrageous. Because on the physical level, There's nothing more outrageous. There's, on a physical level, nothing more perverse. And I don't mean that in a moral sense. I just mean that in a physical sense. Two women being together sexually. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, I mean any, any right-thinking person would conclude, that's not right. I mean, that's so far off the map, it's not even funny, because that doesn't even make sense biologically. That's crazy. Do notice that in this text, the judgment of God, the wrath of God, is evidenced in things like two women being together. Do notice that while the Bible teaches that such things Merit the wrath of God, that would be 1 Corinthians 6. That's not what Romans 1 is talking about. Romans 1 is talking about God's wrath has come because God has revealed Himself and we've said, to me God is. And so God says, all right, you want that? I'm going to give you my wrath of abandonment and it's going to lead to such outrageous and such outlandish things and you'll be able to see that you are under the wrath of God because such things as outrageous as women, being with women will happen in your midst. In the context here, the women with women is not meriting the wrath of God. We'd have to go to another text. The context here is rejecting the one true God for who He's revealed Himself to be merits the wrath of God and the wrath of God is seen in outrageous, unthinkable things like women being with women. Who would ever think it? It's as if to say everyone would know that is, is very, very far gone. Feinberg and Feinberg in their Ethics for a Brave New World say, Paul states very clearly that homosexuality is God's judgment. The homosexuality is God's judgment here. Others would say the same thing. Sexual misconduct is seen as the consequence of God's wrath. This text is not a homosexuality hate text. If anything, it puts it in the light of being pitiful. 
We are under the wrath of God. Where we see women with women, we, we, we can know that we are under the wrath of God. We have already done the unthinkable and said, God, we know you've made yourself clear to us, but we think otherwise. And God says, all right, I'll give you your freedom. You're going to experience such outrageous things in your midst that are even unthinkable. My wrath will be revealed in things like this. It's very, very troubling. Well, he says essentially the same thing with men. Verse 27, And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men? Committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error? That's, that's the wrath of God. That's evidence of the wrath of God. Now, before we go on, do notice there is such a thing as something that's natural according to that text, something that is unnatural. That, that's objective. There is indecent. There is error. There's a standard. This is unthinkable. And once again, just because I don't want you to miss it, we could go to other texts to show, yes, those actions merit the coming wrath of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and following, that kind of text. But that's not this. This is evidence that we are currently under it. And that's why things are so messed up. Who would have thought this would be happening in our world? Well, this is what happens. Now, there's a lot of ink spilled over the end of verse 27 and receive their own, in their own persons, in their own bodies, the due penalty of their error. Well, he doesn't say what that is. But there's a natural consequence. You, you go down that road of pursuing what it is you want and it leads to being more perverse and more perverse and more perverse and it's eventually going to lead to men with men and women with women and there's going to be natural consequences for that. STDs, you could say, that, that's common sense conclusion. Not that everyone who has STDs has done this, but that's a natural conclusion. Social impact, psychological impact, eternal impact. I suppose this is the right place for us to step back and say, okay, even though this is talking about theological truth that is, is always in gear. There, there are those times in history where we see great lights, where actually there's been a recovery of the truth about the wrath of God. And there's been, therefore, a recovery about, uh, of the gospel. And we've moved away from this being so rampant. And that's certainly true. It's not always true, but it comes and goes. And, and I don't want to take this, I don't want to take the, the, the weightiness of this away as far as Romans 1, 2, and 3 are proving to us, showing to us that we're all under the wrath of God. But I think it's appropriate for us to also see this even as we look at a culture, even as we look at our world that we live in. Where are we in the light and darkness scale of things as we see the wrath of God at different times manifested? If I had a coin, and I don't, I always take my change and my keys out of my pockets when I preach so I don't stand up here and drive you all crazy. I'd look at it and say right there, our nation, we say, in God we trust. When I read that and I look at the world around me, I think of John 2. In John chapter 2, it talks about how many believed in Jesus. And literally, it goes on to say, but Jesus did not believe in them because He knew what was in their hearts. We say, in God we trust. Look around. We're under the wrath of God. We trust God. Ha <laughs> ha. He doesn't trust us. 
at least when you look at the evidences of wrath around us, we have as our mantra, to me God is, to me God is, to me God is. And that has led to us seeing the manifestation of the wrath of God. We have gender feminism, which insists that sex assignment is irrelevant. Or how about the study of 50 AIDS victims done in the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta? Discovered that the median number of lifetime sexual partners for these men was 1,100. Some claiming as many as 20,000. The median number for a control group without the disease was 550. Again, not that everyone who has the disease is a homosexual, but that is, uh, in our country, the concentration According to one conservative researcher, who I will not name, 33% of the Girl Scouts staff is lesbian in our country. Not the volunteers, the staff. Albert Muller comments, the fact that homosexual marriage is even an issue for public debate demonstrates that we are a civilization in crisis because a great many barriers must be breached in order to put this question on the cultural agenda. David Murrow observes that the Catholic priesthood, the nation's most visible pastoral group, is said to, have, to be more than 50% homosexual. The upcoming generation, according to Murrow, of Catholic priests may be up to 70% gay. End of quotation, and I will add, and he is not negative toward Catholicism. This is not to mention what's happening in major denominations. This is not to mention what happens in our great, quote-unquote, Husker nation. The wrath of God. We see it all around us. We are under it. That's what Romans wants us to believe. We see it all around us. One nation under, insert, the wrath of God. It's already here. But please remember, in this text, the great outrage is not the effect Homosexual sin, as outrageous as that is and as perverse as it is. The great outrage in this text is the cause. God says, this is who I am. And we say, we don't think so. That's so outrageous. God is going to give us over and it's going to lead to all sorts of unthinkable, unspeakable things. The great outrage, though, is God made himself known and we said, no, I care to differ. And we see the effect of that everywhere. And as you see the effect of it, much more intense right now than 25 years ago, you need to know what you're seeing. The effect of exchanging the truth of God for a lie and creating our own God and now we are experiencing the difficulty. If I can just use an illustration that's not perfect regarding this. I mentioned other denominations in my little list of illustrations. 
In a microcosm, this is kind of interesting, in the Presbyterian Church USA, who is essentially concluding now that pastors could be homosexuals. You know, they're going to argue back and forth. They're going to have a few more meetings, but we've seen this happen with other issues, and that's where it's going to go. You know, that's the effect. Because a long time ago, it was decided that even though Jesus says things like, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me. They decided they didn't believe that. God says, here's who I am. To me, Jesus is much more loving and gracious and inclusive than that. What happens? The sexual perversion stuff happens as the result, showing the wrath of God, which started with the abandonment of God as God. Oh, it still goes on. There's more wrath to come for them. In 2006, it was concluded... Instead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, worshipers may substitute compassionate mother, beloved child, and life-giving womb. There's more wrath to come. There's more wrath to come on that denomination. Because when God says, this is who I am, and you say, to me God is, wrath is inevitable. And it's fair. Just one example. Now, I... Some of you are feeling, who knows what, outraged, bad, broken, all sorts of things. Some of you are feeling good right now. Some of you are feeling good because you're thinking, yeah, you know what? That deserves the wrath of God. That deserves the wrath of God. I'm feeling pretty good now, you know? That's how it should be. Well, I'm so glad that even though he gives this this glaring example of homosexuality as evidence of the wrath of God, he doesn't only give that one. I mean, that's the outrageous one, but he gives more. And so now, for those of you heterosexuals who are feeling pretty good, the sights are set on you. God's wrath has been universally revealed, and it's universally inflicted. Abysmal refrain number three starts in verse 28. And just as they... I think he's going back to just unbelievers in general now because he goes back and cycles his argument. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, literally they they thrust him out, they kicked him out of their little circle. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over, there it is again, to a depraved mind. Then he elaborates on what he's been talking about. This depraved mind idea. Verse 28, to do those things that are not proper, to do those things that are wrong. And verse 29 goes on to say, being filled with all unrighteousness. Talk about a verse to talk about total depravity. They're just not unrighteous in kind of, sort of, 75% or 20%. They're filled with all unrighteousness. People are bad and that leads to bad things. And then he gives this unpacking of what he's talking about. Remember, the unrighteousness came up earlier in verse 18. They suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. They're filled with unrighteousness. That's why they suppressed the truth. Notice the connection. And now we're going to have to go quickly. And I don't think these are even necessarily meant to be separated out. I think there's a lot of overlap in this list. He's making the point that people 
not just homosexuals, do horrible things. And it's evidence of the wrath of God. Let's go ahead and go through the list. He leads it off with full of unrighteousness. He leads really broad and then he, he fleshes it out. He goes on to say, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy or jealousy, murder. Remember Jesus said, even if you think the, the bad thought is as if you've done it in Matthew 5.22, strife or translated quarrel somewhere else, deceit or deception, malice or meanness. They are gossips, literally they're whisperers, slanderers, haters of God. I think that's interesting and worthy to point out. Notice this, con- this text has not been saying they're not worshipers. They're worshipers of some kind, but when it comes to the one true God, it says they're haters of God. Insolent or violent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, which is very intriguing to me. Inventors of evil. It's not that these people are stupid. They're they're pretty smart. They're going to come up with new ways to sin, new ways to do this. They, They invent evil. Let's go to the lab and figure out a new way to do this. It's even more offensive. Disobedient to parents. Without understanding untrustworthy, they don't keep their word, unloving. That one really stood out to me too. I had to make choices about time and what we would comment on. Unloving, it's a word that's describing here, lack of natural affection. Evidence of the wrath of God is when people don't show natural affection. That's what, that, that which would come natural and normal to them. What's normal for a pregnant mother? It's to have her baby, to love the baby. Not kill the baby. Unloving, lacking natural affection, going right along with that unmerciful or ruthless or without pity. Verse 32 says, And although they know the ordinance of God, the decree of God, they, they, they know it. This goes back to his earlier argument. The, the truth is in them. They just suppress it. They know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. This just makes sense. If you do these outrageous things, that, that leads to consequences. And there's something deep down inside all of us that absolutely knows that's true. But do they repent? No. Look at verse 32 where it goes on to say, They not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's the total outrage. It's the total outrage. We not only do them, we affirm them when others do them. We give 21 Emmy Awards, 5 Golden Globes, and 8 Screen Actors Guild Awards to the Sopranos. Why? I mean, when you read through this list, most of these things could be on a, on a trailer for The Sopranos. Why? Why do we give them all these awards? Why? Because there's, we're, we're Sopranos inside. 
It's us. Now, they wear it on their shirt sleeve, and so we watch and we give them awards. Why would we do that? Because there's something in all of us. We identify with them. Even secular writers would say that's why it's such a big hit. We not only do them ourselves, we praise others who do them. And in this case, we really praise others who do it and they just do it without any veneer whatsoever. It's our favorite show. Because it's either who we really are or who we'd really like to be. What do you think? Think I'll get a nomination for America's pastor? <laughs> yes, the two presidential candidates will be wanting to meet here next week. <laughs> and my question for them is, what is the gospel? And do you know that you are currently under the wrath of God, as am I, apart from the grace of God? Okay, here's my big question. In light of all of this, this is in the context of Romans. What do you do when you know that you're under the wrath of God? Or can I say, what do you know when you, you know someone else is under the wrath of God? What do you do when you, when you know this is true? Talk about the weather? Talk about politics? Talk about something, who knows what? Talk about how we should work hard to try to get less people to live sinful lifestyles? No! No, when you know that we're we're under the wrath of God, we are no not we're not only are we under the we're experiencing the wrath of God. What you do is you give the gospel, you tell people the gospel, you tell them the truth about Christ, you tell them the greatness of Christ, how He came here, and how about reverse that list? Good exercise today. Go home and write each of those sinful characteristics that reveal the wrath of God in the reverse, in the positive. And that's what Christ came here to do. Jesus Christ came here and He was perfect in every one of those categories. Absolutely to the core. Why? Because He knew we were under the wrath of God for those things and leading to those things. And so what does He do? He comes here and He lives a perfect life for us, the just, for the unjust. And then what does he do? He goes to the cross and he dies a sinner's death, a horrific death where his father dumps his undiluted wrath out on his son. And then he rises again from the dead, showing, displaying, proclaiming to everyone that the father was satisfied with the work of the son, no doubt. Romans 5, 9 much more than having now been justified by His blood. That's the key. That's the way of escape. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. I love it. I love it. I love Christ. I love to talk about the wrath of God because it helps people see their need for Christ. I want you to love it too. If you are under it, I want you to see how horrible it is so that you can love Christ by His grace and believe in Him. I want you to be equipped so you, and you don't have to be perspiring like me, and you don't have to be yelling and straining your voice like me, but out of love and compassion that you would speak to people about the reality of the wrath of God so that the gospel, when you speak of Jesus dying, and you speak of Jesus' righteous life, and you speak of His resurrection, it will make sense. And we can see our world change. 
for the glory of Christ because we're going to see that He's it. He's everything. It's my greatest passion in life. I can't wait to talk about the wrath of God next time because we're going to understand the gospel better than we do right now. And next, the sights are going to be set on the do-gooders. And next, the sights are going to be set on the religionists. Because if being a do-gooder got you to heaven, or being a religious person gets you to heaven, Jesus didn't need to come. But those things don't work. He came. And we don't have to be under the wrath of God. And that is phenomenal and worthy of our praise. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for the greatness of Christ, the greatness of our great Savior. You loved us so much as sinners who deserve your wrath that you had your very own unique Son come here and live for us, die for us, rise again from the dead for us. He's returning for us. It is absolutely amazing. And we want our life, our devotion, our response, our praise, our worship, we want everything to show our gratitude, to show our praise. Lord, thank you for your great Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.